0: Fictoplasm, episode 93 The Sparrow by Mary Doria Russell Now this is Mary Doria Russell's debut novel which won the Arthur C. Clarke, Tiptree and British Science Fiction Awards and it looks like this book and the sequel, The Children of God are the only science fiction of her works which mostly focus on real world historical settings and even though this is science fiction because it's effectively a first continent scenario it's still rooted in our world's history specifically the missionary efforts of the Society of Jesus. It touches on religious philosophy, linguistics, anthropology, biology, physics, even musicology. And so even though it's objectively hard science SF, um, although it takes a few liberties there, um, that's only a small component of the novel. One of the open questions is, Why, when the Jesuit missionaries are treated with such hostility and undergo such hardship in their mission, do they continue to return? There's the conversation about what it is to find and lose God. Now, this is a book about faith in the Catholic Church, but it's also a compelling mystery and survival story. So, as usual, I'm going to do a synopsis, then talk about some gameable themes, which there are a lot of, Um, and finally, a couple of notable bits of media. Here we go. The premise is a group of characters are brought together by chance and discover evidence of extraterrestrial life in Alpha Centauri. With the backing of the Catholic Church, they mount an expedition to an alien world called Rukat, where they encounter its non-human cultures as they struggle to survive, being isolated from Earth in time and space. The characters who come together seem all perfectly suited to the mission, And this is one of the signs that the protagonist, Father Emilio Sandoz, takes as a sign that God wants them to go together on the mission to another star system. The first portion of the novel is about joining the various characters together. So we have uh, Sofia Mendez, and she's a Turkish AI specialist of Jewish descent and orphan of the Second Kurdish War, which means that she's been scooped up by a venture capitalist who basically gets to garnish her earnings for life. Um, this is part of a private sector practice of judging the future worth of exceptional orphaned children and then sponsoring their education in the expectation of a return on the investment, sort of you know, a capitalist response to a failing welfare state. And as a result, Mendez is very task focused because her time literally is money. And when she's contracted via her broker to turn Emilio's linguistic method into an AI, she's very cold towards him and all business. And at the same time, Emilio comes into contact with Anne Edwards, who's taking his Latin 101 class. And subsequently, he also meets her husband, George. Then the youngest character, Jimmy Quinn, comes into the frame, another of Sophia Mender's subjects, this time... She's divining how he interprets astronomic data, because he works for the SETI project in Puerto Rico. He develops an infatuation with Sophia, which is not returned, Um, but they all end up being regular dinner guests at the Edwards, which is how this group is assembled. And it's actually Jimmy's infatuation for Sophia and the fact that she's paying more attention to Emilio that drives him to have an all-nighter of looking at SETI data, which then results in his remarkable discovery. There is another group of characters from the Society of Jesus who care for and interrogate Emilio when he returns from the mission, including the father-general Vincenzo Giuliani, John Candotti, who grows closer to Emilio during his recovery, Edward Bear, Philip Reyes, who was a child when Emilio left and is now physically older than Emilio on his return, thanks to relativity. And Volker, who is the you know the requisite asshole on the interrogating panel, he's very skeptical of Emilio's suffering and finally, there are a couple of other mission characters like Alan Pace, uh, Mark Rubishow, and uh, DW Yarborough, who was Emilio's mentor in the Jesuits as well as being a fighter pilot and Then there are two more characters of note who are natives of the new planet: Askama, who is an interpreter for her people and the person whom Emilio learns the alien language. And also Supari Vagajur, who is an entirely different species to Askama and pretty much instrumental in Emilio's downfall. So the novel begins in 2016 after Emilio has returned with horrific injuries to earth um, from the mission in Rakhat. He's in terrible physical condition, in particular his hands have been mutilated beyond repair by human surgeons, and there's a great deal of interest in him by the Jesuits, who also take great care to keep him out of the sight of the media. This action is intercut with what came before the mission in 2019. Emilia's quite young at the start, something like 28. And thanks to relativity, he's in his mid-30s when he returns in 2060, since Alpha Centauri is about four light years away. The early part of the novel brings the characters together, and that climaxes with the discovery by Jimmy Quinn of The Alien Signal, which he determines is some kind of singing by voices that clearly aren't human. These are assumed to be some kind of sacred singing based on the composition and sound. Uh, There's even this throwaway bit where the recordings of alien voices are pirated and then monetized by music streaming services. So anyway, by Emilio's prompting, they form their little group of experts, which include a doctor, a physicist, an engineer, AI expert, linguist, all drawn from this group of friends with prior relationships. So then they launch themselves towards Racha using a hollowed out asteroid, which they, uh, they basically accelerate to 1g. And through that constant acceleration, they reach light speed. Yeah, that's kind of playing fast and loose with the physics. But anyway, in this world, it's a mining practice to stick engines into asteroids and move them into Earth orbit. But because so many mining companies go bankrupt, there's a massive surplus of these these asteroids. And they pick the most suitable one and then launch themselves at Alpha Centauri at a constant acceleration of 1G. Uh, And this takes them several months' subjective time. But that's almost two decades' Earth relative time. And as a result, they're totally on their own when they get there. You know, even a radio transmission will take four years to get home after they broadcast it. So This is intercut with scenes from the inquest in 2060 back on Earth, which foreshadow the plot of the mission, as well as hint at Emilio's mental state. We know fairly early on and I said this isn't a spoiler uh, we know fairly early on that he was the sole survivor of the mission and when he returns with his maimed hands and you know suffering malnutrition and possible radiation exposure you initially led to think that there's been an accident in space you know that's where my head went But we also know that he had a reputation that preceded him, based on the reports of the UN mission that travelled out to Rakhat to make contact with and rescue the Jesuit team. They made and broadcast a mission report, which took four years to get home, obviously. But then his return took another 17 years, Earth relative, which means that by his arrival, he's been tried in absentia by the media for what? Sounds like truly awful crimes, which are pretty much unbelievable to the reader, knowing what we know about Emilio. Now, what actually happened on Rakat, and and I'm going to speak very broadly to avoid too many spoilers, is the group did make contact and discovered Rakat has two different intelligent humanoid species – They first encounter the Runa, who are herbivorous rural people, and they realise that the Runa can't be wholly representative of all life on this world. For one thing, they don't have the technological capability for the radio signals they detected. But also, they actually seem to be upset by hearing singing when they have a campfire song. Um, So they can't be the originators of the songs that Jimmy Quinn detected. They assume that there are cities with more advanced manufacturing as well as a more diverse culture. But later they discover that it's a whole separate species from the runa called the gena'ata. These are carnivorous and sharp-clawed, genetically separate, but they actually look like the runa and, and they deduce that the reason for that is aggressive mimicry so that the predator can hide amongst the herds of the prey. That was all centuries ago, and of course they've now evolved together. There are a few details which aren't critical to the plot, but they do provide some really nice colour. For example, how the runa have twin irises in their eyes, and how their visual spectrum is different from the Janata, and how the runa are a matriarchal society, and females tend to be born to the task of interpreting language and negotiation. And the runa and Jainata also have their own social assumptions and structures. And the Rina, for example, have no notion of privacy and never leave the characters alone. They feel that isolation actually hurts people. As for the Jana'ata, they are far less numerous and have a strict approach to population control, including in their own species, where the firstborn goes into the military police, the second born into government, and the thirdborn are, are merchants and artists, but they're forbidden from siring offspring. So one such thirdborn is Supari Vagadur, and they see their contact with the Offworlders as a way of gaining favour and thus the permission to sire an entirely new bloodline of their own, getting around this the fact that they're a thirdborn. The originators of the songs are these thirdborn artists. Now, they're poets and they're connoisseurs of the exotic. You know, so they really go for the coffee beans that the Earth mission brought with them, for example. So it's clear that they intend to parade the Offworlders within their community. Not that Supari is, you know, a malicious character. In fact, they're quite sympathetic, being one of the few of their race who speaks to the Runer in their own language rather than insist the Runer speak their tongue. So Supari is guilty of being careless with his human guests, but that's about it. The other. Aspect of population control which uh, arises from this huge imbalance between the population of the Rinna and the Janata is basically one of the reasons the mission fails eventually, and it's it's basically the uh, the Jesuits being there and some of the assumptions they make upsets the natural order of things and causes the uh, causes the the elites the ruling elites the Jana'ata to take drastic action in response. So this story is a tragedy uh, and without revealing everything that happens in detail, we do have the kind of events you might expect from a dangerous expedition into unknown territory. So there, there are accidents, there's sickness, there's hostile local conditions. It's also, it's not a spoiler to know that Emilio does end up alone and at the mercy of his Gianna Arta hosts who treat him as a novelty and a plaything and eventually get bored of him. And he does suffer both physical and mental abuse. And that's really what he is. He's a survivor of abuse, you know, the kinds of gross physical abuse that earlier missionaries in our history had suffered at the hands of the people they were trying to bring God to. And this leads to his own crisis of faith. And that's partly what the inquest is doing. It's picking over the facts of the mission and giving Emilio the chance to tell his own story and to process what happened to him even though he feels like he's being victimised in the process. So, in summary, it's, n- it's not a feel-good book, but it is a good book. It's a great book. Really well-paced, really compelling mystery, great characters, and a thorough exploration of what it means to be human and faithful, um, shonky physics notwithstanding. So with that, I'd like to address some themes, and there are quite a few for this story. The first is, what do we mean by science fiction? And it just so happens that the, right at the point of recording this, I've just listened to the Smart Party's interview with Sean Tonkin, who's the author of Ironsworn and Starford, which I wasn't previously aware of. And they ask a really great question, which is, why doesn't SF capture the imagination in the way that fantasy and horror does? Which is something I'd actually already written in the notes for this podcast. Um... So I think that it comes from SF being a very broad church. You know, you can have hard and soft SF. You can have near future versus far future. It can be culturally focused. It can be exploration. It can be cyberpunk. It can be dystopian. And, you know, more than one of those at the same time. If you want to attract somebody to your RPG or novel, it's not enough to say that it's SF. So specific SF is niche. But general SF is, I think, less attractive than general fantasy uh, you've got a more of a handle on what you do in a fantasy game and i think the problem with games like traveler is that the the lowest common denominator seems to be trading and you know paying off your space mortgage there was also a, another very good comment in that episode which i wrote in my own notes almost verbatim in fact which is the sense of wonder that space exploration should be imparting so i'm going to get to that in a moment but first i'm going to talk about Hard SF versus soft SF. Now, this is a bit like high fantasy and low fantasy in that, you know, for hard SF, we normally think of hard science. So, you know, conservation of momentum in space, for example. Whereas um, for soft SF, we say, oh, it's not hard, it's hand-wavy physics. Um, But just like there's more than one definition of low fantasy... There's a slightly different distinction from the Encyclopedia of SF. And the hard and soft come from the hard and soft sciences. So the hard sciences are all about um, matter and energy, physics, um, and the harsh realities of what the universe is like and, and how difficult it is to survive. Whereas the soft sciences are all about the humanities, the interacting with other races, the social effects of science fiction. And there's an argument that Star Wars and BSG fits into soft SF, because mostly they're about social interaction in space. But it is action-adventure stuff. Now, by this hard-soft definition, the question is, is the Sparrow hard or soft SF? And my gut feeling at the start was, oh, it's hard SF, because it's realistic SF. And that works for the science and engineering aspects, although... There is this awful hand waving as far as um, the time it takes to travel light years and the amount of energy you'd need to accelerate something to near light speed. But those aren't such big aspects as the social and philosophical stuff, which has equal if more prominence in the story. Also, the other thing that struck me was if I were to hear someone say, oh, I want to play a hard SF game, I wouldn't automatically expect them to want to actually solve physics problems. You know, rather, I'd expect them to want to play in a world where physics and other sciences are accurately or you know, logically portrayed, and that would be the container for whatever game they wanted to play, whether that was an exploration or you know, a mystery or a war or a diplomatic exercise. Just just like any other RPG is a container for that kind of scenario. Now, some RPGs are obviously better suited to certain scenarios than others. Um, so, hopefully I'll explore that later. But I'm going to focus on two distinct aspects, both present in the Sparrow, for hard SF and soft SF by that definition. So, for the hard SF side, we have, I guess, exploration and expeditions. And this Includes themes like uh, getting from A to B using plausible science, managing your physical resources, which include air, food, uh, even available living space, I think, um, the effects of space on physiology, xenobiology, survival on alien worlds, and also the skills that you might need. And uh, that's an interesting one. Um, so, to represent all of this, I would want to include these thoughts. First, absolutely essential is a way of counting resources like air and fuel Uh, and certainly in space you want to bring it home that everything is precious i i quite like the way that the bsg board game counts fuel and food and i think that you know you could put that in a role-playing game with powered by the apocalypse clocks and using the same idea in the book of course they have um, cylinders drilled into their asteroid spaceship which hold hydroponic pods for capturing co2 and turning it into o2 there's also one bit where they have to work out how long they can visit the surface based on how much their plant matter will survive without them there's another example uh, of resource management where they have to carefully manage fuel on the ground because whilst they have plenty of it on their ship their lander can only hold so much of it and you must have a certain amount to get off the planet into orbit So they're kind of limited for how far they can travel within the atmosphere. And then another thing is um, available space could be a resource that you might want to talk about. Um, Given that you're living on top of one another, although uh, I suppose the impact of that is more social than physical, but it is still a consideration. And uh, once the crew of the Sparrow are on the alien planet, Um, they also have to find a way to survive and to convert their local resources to their needs. And then that leads to the second point, which is about skills. And these, I I think, are really important. We we, we don't really, we consider, you know, we take skills as a given. Here, I think we're talking about skills redundancy. You know, this is a big part of the mission organisation, and each of them double up on their expertise, like language and medicine and piloting. And this made me think of skills redundancy in games generally because we tend to create specialists in games because each character has one unique thing that sets them apart from everyone else. But the reality is that you'd expect everyone to have a basic range of skills which are mission-oriented and then some specialities. But certainly for small ships, everyone is an available resource and everyone needs to pull together and they all need to all be acutely aware of resources. And they also need to be able to turn their hand to different jobs. This is actually a problem when you think about taking on passengers, because a passenger takes out resources, and if they don't contribute otherwise, then somebody else has to pick up the slack. And bigger ships can probably tolerate more spare resource. You know, they, they can take on people who are specialised, who don't contribute to the day-to-day running. But in a small ship... There's a penalty to, you know, taking on a person who doesn't contribute anything and just consumes resources. And I think there's an argument that generalists will be more highly prized than specialists. You know, you, you might have more in-game recognition for having a broad range of skills than a very narrow and specialized range. As a consequence, I think that only for small spaceships in small missions... You'd certainly have a flatter hierarchical structure. You know, it would probably be a lot more meritocratic than, than say, a big starship with a defined hierarchy and career officials. Um, the belters from the expanse are probably a good example. Of the way the ships are organised, um, they, they still need a leader to make actual decisions and provide a vision. But it's going to be a relationship-based society as opposed to a rules-based one. And third and finally, we've got the actual expedition and exploration. And my main remark here is we're really bad at rewarding discoveries and risk-taking in RPGs. Alien is a primary example of making an interesting discovery and then being punished for it. A lot of the incentives in games are based around avoiding anything interesting. We don't reward discovery. It's usually just a means to an end for defeating the big bad. And in the Sparrow, the whole point of the mission is to make contact and learn to go where no one has gone before. You know, and this is part of the softer stuff that's coming up next. Um, but if you've got a mystery, it would be nice to celebrate the discovery. I mean, individual players might role-play being excited about an in-game discovery, but it's not given the same weight as the Uh, non-diegetic incentives on the other side which are hanging on to your hit points and your sanity points uh, avoiding losing those and the most elegant way i can think of celebrating discovery is how call cthulhu does it with cthulhu mythos you know you you read a book you learn something mysterious and your skill goes up um it's not good in call cthulhu but you know the general principle is sound and simple and this sense of wonder is kind of what i would prefer in traveller you know, it's what actually what i expected from traveller when reading it when i was 12 years old you know i'd like to go to weird places and investigate black holes don't particularly want to do the trading bit doesn't sound interesting anyway that's the hard sf stuff that's all about you know survival and getting from a to b so what about soft sf Uh, Well, the other side of the Sparrow's narrative is the first contact stuff. So this includes language, you know, learning the languages. And it also includes discovering that there's more than one race. And therefore, they have to work out the relationship between the two races. That's part of the mystery. Um, So a mystery element to the scenario. There was an interesting comment in the Frankenstein's RPG podcast where they said, one person said, they were talking about investigation mechanics, and they said, well, Everything is investigation, and I think that's true. All games are about investigation, about going from a place where things are unknown to where things are known. But I will say that I think you can only start to engage with this soft social side and the mystery scenario when you're pretty comfortable that your group is going to survive. And if I were writing the scenario, I wouldn't want the PCs to engage with the social stuff without having a good handle on the physical survival stuff. Otherwise, I think... They would be distracted by the the needs of survival, and they'd be constantly focusing on you know, getting food, water, oxygen, whatever. So let's say you're past the bit where you're worried about physical survival, and in the sparrow, this actually forms the bulk of the book. You know, they they uh, they basically they settle on the planet and they get to a stable position where they are surviving, and then they're gathering information, and they start to make discoveries they also make certain mistakes that prove to be disastrous for the whole mission. And to this, I say, you know, what you need to do, just like in the the hard SF side about, uh, you know, discoveries, you need to set aside the ways that they might fail and concentrate on what they can achieve. Um, What I mean by that is you're, you're really looking at a couple of measures of success of this soft SF mission. And one is... Uh, it's literally an increase in skills and it's an increase in comprehension understanding the environment they're in and, and the people they're relating to and the second one which I think is, is maybe even more interesting is the objective is to form relationships with the aliens you know and you, you set it up like this and you, you you accept that we've now formed these relationships with the aliens I can imagine a series of scenes where the characters build up their relationships with members of the alien races. Uh, you know, maybe use something like dramatists and dramatic scenes where you establish what each side wants from the other, and you have an exchange of drama tokens. You you make it very clear about uh, what both sides want from the conversation. Um, and just like celebrating the positive side of the scientific discoveries, you celebrate the relationships formed. That is a measure of success in the role playing game. And those relationships are going to then be the route to the more interesting discoveries about the alien society, Um, like being invited to taste their food or witness their more private rituals, which is something that also happens in The Sparrow late on. I think this is the more challenging side of the scenario to actually gamify the social side. You know, gamifying the peril in space is going to be relatively straightforward by comparison. But I think we have enough uh, sort of drama-type role-playing games these days that I think this could be achieved with the right uh, mindset. So my closing remarks, to sum up, this is what I'm thinking about for a hard SF setting. You need to count resources. You need to count available work and skills. Um, Polyvalence is going to be common and valuable, certainly for small ships. Um, Small ships trend towards meritocracy, Larger ships might uh, be able to support more unusual crew and passengers and might tend towards a more corporate hierarchy. Isolation and exploration are going to be fairly common scenarios where you're on your own uh, or your group is on your own. And finally, if you can, find a way of celebrating discovery rather than just emphasising the risk of exploration and only having horrible things happening and for the soft sf side again i think you need to celebrate discovery you need to celebrate learning and then you need to form relationships now system wise i consider a drama system cthulhu dark uh powered by the apocalypse probably because um no, specifically powered by the apocalypse because you could write specific moves for day-to-day survival as well as using clocks. You could construct fronts, one, one front for when you're in space, another one for when you're on the planets, and so on. So one final point, and um, I haven't talked about technology, um, and it's for this reason. I think once you pass the realities of hard science, technology is just color. So technology solves problems. So you just pick which problems you have, and the ones that are solved by tech are either not a concern or they only become a concern when the tech resource runs out. And don't worry about it otherwise. I always like to close the episodes with talking about other media. So the first bit of media I want to mention is, of course, the expanse, you know, partly for the realistic physics and space. But also look at the social organisation of the Belters and Mars and Earth. You know the inner planets have a traditional hierarchy, and the Belters have more or less a meritocracy. And I think that can't be uh, can't be overstated. I I think the meritocracy partly arises because of the need to depend upon one another in a very hostile environment. Yeah, simple, it's tribal behaviour. And I've not actually read the books; I just watched the series. Okay, uh, moving on, Um, something a bit different then. The album, Form Grows Rampant, by the Threshold Houseboys Choir, also known as Peter Christopherson, also known as Sleazy, uh, former member of Throbbing Gristle and Coil. Now, that album is special because the singing voices are entirely artificial. And my understanding is it's way easier to take a human voice and distort it to sound inhuman than to produce one digitally. And that's what Christofferson did. So, the connection to the sparrow is that one of the initial claims is that the singing voices that are detected by SETI are artificial and a hoax. And if that were the case, you know, there might be some evidence of digital manipulation of the earthly file. Um, So, I was kind of thinking about how you might use this as a way to sell the evidence that the extrasolar transmission is actually real, it's not a hoax. But anyway, form grows rampant. bit obscure, I quite like it. Next, a couple of books. First one is Joe Haldeman's The Forever War, which, I mean, the novel feels a lot like Heinlein's Starship Troopers, and I think that's by design. I, I think it's actually supposed to be a direct reply to that book. The interesting parts are to do with relativity and how Mandala moves through several ages of human civilization by dint of lots of FTL travel. And in that case, so much time passes that any rumours and stories of the protagonists that precede their arrival back on Earth are probably so old that they're a, lot, they're a lot less significant. And of course, the other issue is political changes that move faster than communication. So wars can end... And the people fighting in remote areas of space don't get the message. This actually happens at the end of the book. It also happens at the end of uh, Halo Jones, I think. The other book I want to mention is Frederick Pohl's Gateway, uh, mainly because the mystery missions that the protagonists join in that book are in small craft. Uh, where the explorers end up living on top of one another for weeks or months, and there's some really great description about what it's like, what it smells like having to live on top of other humans for that period of time with nowhere else to go. And finally, uh, I want to mention a role-playing game, which is Diaspora, which is a fate-hard science fiction game from 2009, published by VSCA, who also did Hollow Point, which is a game I really like, and The Deluge, which is about... uh, turning your hometown into a flooded post-apocalypse landscape. Pretty cool. In the introduction, the authors talk about what they wanted to create. Uh, They say this, I'll quote it verbatim. We decided that we wanted to build something new, something that wasn't our old favourite, but which would push the same buttons as did the games we played in the 1980s. Some guys in a ship visiting new planets, shooting at stuff or getting embroiled in a civil war or being caught on a low-tech planet looking to recharge an energy rifle, or finding the archaeological remains of sentient lizardmen, and thus, diaspora. While not all of us had the same goals to begin with, we hammered out some objectives. First would be that the game would retain as much of our previous tinkering as possible, because it was really good tinkering. Second would be that the game would aim for the feel of hard science fiction, harder than Traveller than Star Wars, than Battlestar Galactica. No quasi-magical anti-gravity, no inertialist drives, no FTL travel. Well, okay, we need FTL. But we wanted the feeling of something harder, where one would always be aware of the physical constraints that space travel would impose, while still offering a game that allows stories to be told on the scale of multiple worlds in a reasonable human time frame. So I'm not a big Fate fan, but if I were going to run a hard SF game, this might be my go-to, because it has a cunning way of mapping out and connecting solar systems, including comparing their relative tech levels. It's, It's really a toolkit for designing and owning the setting, which is right up my street. But it doesn't prompt you to play with some really crazy big star map. Uh, in fact, the relationship between star systems is topological, which is a better way to present the information, full stop. Um, and you also see the toolkit approaching character generation, uh, weapon design, and, and a few other things. So I really like it, and it's a bit of a sleeper, I think. Now, it does have some crunchy bits, uh, some of which I really appreciate, like the play sheets for various forms of combat. But what I really like is it seems to capture the spirit of the bits of Traveller I like, but also it it excises the bits that I'm less keen on, you know, the Traveller metaplot package. If I were to use it, I'd probably generate six solar systems and then only have a couple properly mapped out and explored, and then frame the game as an exploration of the other systems that's the end of the episode um thank you so much for listening now fixplasm has a patreon and i would like to send big thanks out to my patrons thank you for all your support i really appreciate the encouragement now if you join the patreon you obviously support the show but there are a few other rewards as well including monthly content for my rpgs in progress as well as chats ama sessions and other perks like the odd bonus episode now, last month, I presented the game "The Last Days of Dorian Aquila" to the patrons, um, that's a scenario set over three days, up to and including Dorian Aquila's last duel. Next month, it'll be a game about agents hunting heart-stopping horrors. Also, I'm writing a weekly blog post on Sundays on the podcast I've been listening to, which you can find on the Fictoplasm site, and also I tweet about it. So, that's it for this episode. Thanks again. Music for this podcast is by Chris Zabriskie. Find out more. At chrisabrissi.com. Until next time, I'll speak to you later. Bye bye.